Welcome to this time when we seek God together through his word. My name is Steve Barbie, and I'm one of the pastors here at Old Oak Bible Church. Today we rejoice that the gospel is still true, that God is still there, that we who are without hope and without God in the world have been brought near and been made at peace with God through the death and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus. The gospel is still good news today. It is the best news today. If this is your introduction to Old Oak Bible Church, uh, we'd like to extend a special welcome to you. I know this is an unusual time, but we'd love to get to know you better. So please feel free to reach out, send an email to me, ask any questions you might have. Tell us any ways we might be able to pray for you during this time or serve you. Um, and even when this is all over, we would love to get to meet you in person. So uh, please know that you're welcome today. And then for those who are a part of Old Oak, uh, I miss you. Uh, I know we all miss each other as well. I know a lot of you are probably wondering when we could be back together again in person. And if you're wondering that, know that you're not alone. I wonder that as well. I can't, to be honest, I can't really say with any certainty. We're taking this week by week. We're going to do our best to continue to just communicate consistently, let you know what we're thinking through, and just um, try to reach out as much as we can. So even though this time's not the same as being together in person, it can't replace all that it means to be together in person, uh, we want to do our best and dive into God's word together and seek the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to expound the scriptures, and today we want to treasure our God and Savior. So let's start our time with prayer. Would you please pray with me? Infinitely holy, merciful, and powerful God. We praise you today that though the grass withers, the flower fades, that your word stands forever. We praise you today that though we wither and perish, you do not. Father, today we seek you, the rock higher than us. We seek to stand on the foundation of your word, both written and incarnate. The Lord Jesus, we praise you that your work to atone for our sin remains finished. Your sacrifice remains complete. Your resurrection from the dead remains true. And you remain interceding for us. Spirit of God, we praise you today that you are still working in your people to make us holy, to keep us until the final day, to finish the work you began. Father, we seek your mercy still in these unusual and challenging days. We pray again that you would restrain the effects of COVID-19, working even through the wisdom of doctors and leaders. We pray, God, for your mercy to comfort, to heal, and be near those who have this virus and their families. We pray for the families also of those who have loved, lost loved ones to this virus. We pray for your mercy, God, to protect healthcare workers, and we're thankful for them. Please, God, give them energy. Please be close to them. Lord, this time humbles us. It reminds us and shows us our limits, limits even in, in knowing how to pray. So, Father, we trust you. Help us continue to trust you. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our unity as a church, that you would grow us in godliness, that you would use us for your glory in and through this hard time. And not just for us, Lord, but we pray for this, the same for other churches, including First Baptist Church in Brunswick, 
God, please continue to build them up through your word. Show them your kindness. Grant them wisdom. Grant them perseverance. God, we pray also for other nations. And we are not the only ones to feel the effects of a fallen world. So we pray this morning for the country of Syria, an already hard place to live. And as COVID-19 enters there, please have mercy on that land. God, we ask that your kindness would, grant, would lead many to repentance so that many would take hold of your greatest mercy, that even when we were enemies against you, Christ died for us. Lord, we want to press into the hope we have in you today. We want to know you more, to live for you more. So God, please work in us through your word for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 678,720. That's the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 around the world. Nearly 125,000 of those are in the United States. 31,700. That's the number of deaths brought on by COVID-19 around the world. 1,668 of them are in the United States. Those numbers are as of around 7 a.m. this morning. And as many of you have probably heard, those numbers are expected to get worse before they're expected to get better. Now, as I've tried to state throughout any time I talk about COVID-19 and how to contain it and its effects, I'm not a medical expert. I'm not a medical professional. But what it seems to me and from what I've observed is that even medical experts and professionals can't predict with any kind of real certainty just how long COVID-19 will last and what all the effects will be. So the numbers from COVID-19, we read them, we see them on the news. They're unsettling. They're shocking. So much so that in talking to some of you on Wednesday night at our Zoom meeting that you can't even look at these numbers for too long. You see, COVID-19 represents what's always in front of us, what's always there. That suffering touches each one of us, and it's often an overwhelming weight to carry. Suffering surrounds us, and most suffering doesn't make headlines. William Shakespeare wrote this. He said, each new morn, New widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. Suffering is everywhere all the time. For many people, suffering is what distances them from God. They question how a good God can let such awful events happen. Now we want to have compassion in that dilemma and today we want to be humble and not pretend that we can exhaustively explain that dilemma and answer it. But we can go to God's word and we can speak from experience that for as many who have grown distant from God as a result of suffering, there are just as many who have been close to God in their suffering, who have even found God in their suffering and who even emerged from suffering closer to God. C.S. Lewis, I quote him all the time, he was a man acquainted with suffering. After he lost his wife and many other suffering, he wrote this in his book, The Problem with Pain. 
He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but God shouts in our pain. You see, most of us don't grip the full depth and meaning of truth, especially the reality of God, until we experience some kind of suffering and loss. It's living through suffering that causes us to say, alongside David in Psalm 34, verse 1, that I will bless the Lord at all times. We can say that because we've experienced alongside David what he says later in that psalm in verse 18, that the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit. So far from being a book all about heaven and sunshine and rainbows, the Bible is actually a book that's much about suffering. It shows suffering's entrance into the world. It shows humanity causing it. It shows suffering spread it, spreading. It shows humanity enduring suffering, responding to it. The Psalms give us languages for all of life. And you know, most of the Psalms deal with responding to hard stuff in life, responding to suffering. And so this morning, the reality of suffering is staring us in the face. And so what we want to do is see the God who is there, who often feels absent, but never is. We want to see the God who rules over all that he's made. And we want to see the God who himself even participated in suffering. And to do that, we're going to take an overview of the book of the Bible that I think is most devoted to this topic of suffering. That's 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a book for sufferers. So the plan for today is to look at five sections of 1 Peter, one from each chapter, and from those five sections, see five reasons why we don't have to fear suffering anymore. We are freed from that fear. So the main takeaway from our whole time, kind of the banner that hangs over it, is this. God gives us better reasons to hope in suffering then we have to fear in suffering. So we can walk through suffering knowing God really loves us. Christ actually died for us and glory truly awaits us. So I invite you to take a Bible, find the book of 1 Peter. It's in the New Testament. It's right after the books of Hebrews and James and novelly enough, it's right before the book of 2 Peter. So we're going to start in 1 Peter. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. The word of God reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, 
you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We are freed from suffering, first, because suffering can't take away the true fountain of joy. Suffering can't take away the true fountain of joy. Now, before we examine these opening verses a little bit more closely, it's going to be helpful to know the situation behind 1 Peter. Now, this letter, more precisely than a book, this letter is called 1 Peter because Peter, the apostle, wrote it. And we really have no good historical evidence to doubt that claim, and we should take it at face value. Peter describes himself as an apostle of the Lord Jesus right at the opening of this letter. Later on, he describes himself as an eyewitness to the suffering of Christ. Now, it's likely that Peter wrote in the year 62 or 63 AD. This would have been the time when the Roman emperor Nero was ruling over the Roman Empire, and Peter was right in the middle of it, in the city of Rome itself. Now, if you know Nero, you know that Nero was pretty much a lunatic. And when the city of Rome caught on fire, he blamed that fire on Christians. So Peter is writing during a time when the persecution of Christians is being ramped up more and more. So who is Peter writing to? At the beginning of this letter, we see that Peter was writing to Christians scattered in what would be modern-day northern Turkey. And most of these Christians, as we see descriptions later on in the book, were likely of non-Jewish background. Peter describes their former manner of life. So these were new Christians, new Christians who were suffering for being Christians. And so Peter writes to them, encouraging them, priding them on to persevere through suffering, to maintain hope for what's to come, to enjoy God's promises right now that Jesus has won for them through his death and resurrection. So that's the situation of the book, and that brings us up to Peter's first encouragement and instruction about suffering. So take a look at verse 6 in chapter 1. We're going to start there, because this is kind of functions as a bridge verse in this entire first section. Verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So when he starts with, In this you rejoice, what does the this refer to? Well, it points to what comes before, doesn't it? So they rejoice in God's great mercy to them through Jesus, that though they were without hope, now they have a living hope through Christ's death and res resurrection. They rejoice that now they have assurance that God will remove their sin, redeem their bodies, and bring them to dwell with him forever. That's what they rejoice in. So do you see right away, this is a simple truth that many of us know, but we need reminded of all the time, that God has never meant our deepest joy to come from our circumstances. God's never meant our deepest joy to come from our circumstances. He's meant it to come from something deeper, something far more permanent. That is Christ and the gospel. What Jesus has accomplished for us, that is what we rejoice in. That is our foundation. So does this mean that we're indifferent to our circumstances? That we should never notice when they're bad and not be happy when they're good? No, and I don't think Peter would say that either. 
Because while Peter says that we rejoice in what's deeper and more permanent than our circumstances, Peter does acknowledge the reality of their circumstances. You notice he says they are grieved by various trials, grieved by it. They're affected by it. This is important because Christians are not escapists. Christians are not those who deny the reality of pain, the reality that is plain in front of us. And life is hard and suffering is real. We know this because of the doctrine of what's known as the fall. That when people went, first went away from God, effects from that spread everywhere. So yes, we can experience natural consequences for our sin. But we must acknowledge that the reality of suffering and death is a natural consequence and just judgment of our sin in general. Not always of our sin in particular. This is the fallen world we live in. As Jesus says, the sun shines and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Suffering is not like karma. It's not a quid pro quo system. It's often messy. It's often genuinely difficult to explain. So, these Christians, their joy was not to be in their circumstances, but in God's grace through Christ. And that at the same time, their suffering is real and difficult. They are grieved by them. And as Peter continues, he shows not only that suffering can't take away their true fountain of joy, he also shows them that suffering actually serves to make that fountain of joy even sweeter. Peter says that through suffering and trials that their faith becomes more precious than gold, that their joy becomes inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, how does this work? While in suffering and trials... God exposes and takes us away from what we give ourselves over to too much. God exposes and pulls us away from the other fires besides Christ where we seek warmth. God exposes and pulls us away from, through suffering, the other fountains where we seek nourishment besides Christ. So we say that all the time, that Jesus is all we need. That's really easy to say, but we don't know if it's really true for us until Jesus is all we have. And suffering tests that. So we ask ourselves, what fires, what fountains is God exposing and pulling us away from so that we see the preciousness of Christ? It's something we can ask ourselves all the time. It's something that we should ask ourselves right now in responding to COVID-19. You know, perhaps God is exposing the fire and the fountain of, like, of being like to be in, in control, that we like to have control over everything. We talked about this some last week, that we see comfort and life in being able to explain life neatly and being able to manage it well and being able to have certainty and answers all the time. And so like all suffering, COVID-19 exposes the reality that's always been there. That though we want control, we never have been in control. We've always been vulnerable. We've always been dependent on God. And suffering just wakes us up to that reality and helps us to live like that all the time. Perhaps through COVID-19, God is exposing that we seek to warm ourselves and drink from the fountain of money. You know, some have even posited this week 
that we should be willing to sacrifice our elderly and vulnerable so that we can maintain a good economy. So what if our economy goes into a depression? Do we really believe that our lives do not consist in the abundance of our possessions and that Jesus really is enough? Do we really believe that or is that just a nice thing we say? Perhaps God is exposing our priorities of production and ourselves over people. You know, this one hit home with me. We warm ourselves by the fire of activity and production and our interests. But all of this has forced us to slow down, not to be so active and busy and crazy. All of this has forced us to consider the needs of our neighbors before ourselves. So do you see, it's uniquely in suffering that God asks us, do you seek warmth and life in the good things I give you or do you seek warmth and life in me? Now, it's not that we can't enjoy God's good gifts, but when we have them, it's tough for us to know truly whether or not we seek our all in the gifts or in the giver of those gifts. So it's in suffering then that we see that the true fountain of joy can't be taken away. In fact, we see in suffering all the more how clearly that this fountain is precious. Charles Spurgeon said this, We will never know the fullness of Christ until we see the emptiness of everything else. Turn to chapter 2 of 1 Peter. We're going to find verses 18 to 25. Chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Instead of fearing suffering, Peter calls his readers to endure suffering while doing good. How are they able to do that? Well, this is our second reason. We do not have to fear suffering because Jesus suffered for us. Jesus suffered for us. This is what Peter says in verse 21. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Peter points out two realities of Jesus' work on the cross in his death, two realities that go hand in hand. He says that Jesus suffered and died both as our substitute and as our example. 
And because of these realities, we can endure suffering. So friends, how can you be really sure that God loves you? How can you be sure, I mean, really, that God is your father, that God is never out to get you? How can you be sure that God is kind? If we can be sure of all of that, we can face anything, can't we? Well, we can be sure that God will never abandon us because he abandoned Christ on the cross in our place. We can be sure that there is no punishment from God left for us because Christ bore all of the punishment we deserved in our place as our substitute. Listen to how the eight, early 18th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane describes Jesus as our substitute. He says, Jesus with, was without any comforts of God. No feeling that God loved him. No feeling that God pitied him. No feeling that God supported him. God was his son before. Now that son became all darkness. He was without God. He was if he had no God. All that God had been to him before was taken from him now. He had the feeling of the condemned. This is the hell that Christ suffered. The oceans of Christ's suffering is unfathomable. He was forsaken in the place of sinners. If you close with him as your surety, you will never be forsaken. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer, for me, for us. Friend, would you take hold of this substitute, the Lord Jesus, by faith today? Turning away from living to yourself and casting all of your sin on Christ who bore it in your place and following him as Lord. Brother and sister in Christ this morning, would you know that on your good days and on your bad days, on the days you have your quiet time and on the days you don't have your quiet time, in weakness and in strength, in suffering and in poverty, God's love for you does not change. Because when God sees you, he sees Jesus in your place. This is gospel 101, but we need the gospel every single day. We can know that God is, with, is present in our pain, even that he dwells in us and senses our suffering as if it, he is our own, if it is his own. We can know all of that because Jesus suffered for us. Jesus' suffering as our substitute reminds us that uh, suffering is never punishment but purification. And Jesus' suffering as our example reminds us that suffering is not unique to us. God relates to suffering, not just by intellectual knowledge. God relates to suffering by actual experience. So if Jesus truly is God the Son incarnate, taken on flesh, if Jesus really did die on the cross, and if you think about it, died as the only truly innocent sufferer to have ever lived, if Jesus really did that, then we cannot say that he doesn't understand. The Bible says that Jesus didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but that he abandoned all of the privileges 
of being God the Son, he set them aside and he came to earth. And he lived and he saw it all the way through. He lived to the end as one who committed no sin, but then was treated as being sin itself. So friends, we can endure suffering because we have Jesus who is not out of touch with the reality of suffering, but endured the greatest suffering possible. Let's go to chapter three. Reason number three, we don't have to fear suffering because it's not outside of God's plan and God's control. It is not outside of God's plan and God's control. Find chapter three of 1 Peter, verses 13 to 18. 13 to 18. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, for, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Again, notice what Peter encourages them to do. It says not to fear those who persecute them for being Christians. Rather, they are to honor Christ, to hold on to hope, to maintain gentleness and respect. And his instructions really come to a head in verse 17. He tells them that if suffering comes upon them for being Christians, that this is not outside of God's will. That this doesn't mean that God is no longer in control. So then, they are to continue to trust and follow Christ even as they walk through suffering. Now, we've been talking about life suffering sort of in general, but Peter, as you've probably noticed, mainly talks about suffering that comes specifically for being a Christian. And I think this is a worthy aside just to speak to you for a moment. Uh, I want to submit to you that the response to COVID-19 is not a form of persecuting Christians. It is not a form of persecuting Christians. The restrictions on gatherings affect everybody. They are not specifically targeted at churches. And so just keep in mind also that the government has done nothing to prohibit us from preaching the gospel. So just like we follow building codes and fire codes to ensure the health and safety of our community, so we should follow the restrictions from COVID-19 to ensure the health and safety of our community. It is not persecution. Anyway, we're talking about life suffering in general, suffering for being a Christian. And when Peter writes earlier in his letter, just a little bit of a flashback, he indicates that any kind of suffering is meaningful. In chapter 2, he talked about the suffering that slaves endured from masters. Not all of that suffering came because those slaves were specifically Christians. A lot of their suffering came simply because their masters were unjust and arbitrary. 
And yet, Peter still commends these slaves for enduring this suffering because they were mindful of God through it. So this gives us just a little bit of a hint that any of our suffering, whether it's life suffering in general or suffering for being a Christian, any of our suffering is meaningful when we cling to Christ through it. And what we're saying here in light of chapter 3 is that none of our suffering falls outside of the plan and control of a good and wise God. None of our suffering. That doesn't apply to any of it. And Peter reminds his readers that trusting in God while they're walking through suffering is one of their greatest witnesses to the outside world. You see that in verse three, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. He says one of their most compelling witnesses to the outside world is how they handle suffering. Because it causes the outside world to wonder, what is this hope in you that causes you to endure and to keep going? So friends, how we respond to COVID-19 is a witness to our non-Christian neighbors and friends. How we respond with trust and hope and faith and love is a witness to our non-Christian neighbors and friends as to whether or not we believe that all this Christianity stuff is actually true. Or if it's just true in good times. We could take a cue from our brothers and sisters of previous generations, especially from the early church. In the year 362, the Roman emperor Julian complained that the Roman people needed to match the Christians in the empire in their level of virtue because Christianity was spreading too much. Julian said that Christianity spread largely because of, quote, Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives. Elsewhere, the emperor Julian wrote, For it is a disgrace that the impious Galileans, it's another name for Christians, that the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Friends, take a history lesson. There have been other plagues. There have been other pandemics. And Christians consistently have responded with faith, hope, and love. Where do you think hospitals came from? Where do you think charities came from? Largely from Christians. But this is controversial though, isn't it? Because we're saying that even the worst forms of suffering from genocide to natural disasters to pandemics, we're saying that even the worst form of suffering are not outside the plan and control of God. That's controversial. So what do we say to that? Well, again, I can't pretend to answer that entirely, but we could say a few things. Briefly, if you say that God isn't in control over suffering, you still have a problem. You still have a problem, and in fact, I would argue that your problem is worse. Because that would mean suffering and violence are simply natural, and they're random and arbitrary. And it would mean that suffering is something divorced from any good purpose if you remove God from the picture. We should say, too, to this controversial statement that suffering is in the control of a good and wise God, if we asked God to, to be completely fair, God, be completely fair all the time, if that's what we ask God, 
then our next breath, breath would be the last for each and every one of us. If we ask God to be completely fair. You know, a lot of people ask, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? And that's a worthy question to ask. But not as many people ask, why do, bad, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to any one of us, knowing how we treat God? We should say in light of God being in control of all suffering that the Bible affirms that everything, everything that happens fits and is in harmony with God's plan. Ephesians 1.11, all things happen according to the counsel of God's will. This means that suffering is not outside of God's plan, but a part of it. At the same time, though, the Bible also says that we are 100% responsible for our behavior. It is a both and, not an either or. So all events are 100% under God's purposeful direction, and we are 100% responsible for our behavior. Now, if your head hurts after that, you join the club. I can't pretend to solve and answer that tension entirely this morning. But if you want proof that suffering is not outside of God's plan and control and that we can still trust God through it, look no further to where Peter points in verse 18. Look to where he points. He points to the cross of Christ. On the day of Pentecost, when the church started, Peter himself preached on that day, and he preached that the people in Jerusalem were responsible for crucifying Jesus, 100% responsible. But the people in Jerusalem crucified Jesus according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So the crucifixion was 100% under God's purposeful direction. That means suffering is never meaningless. It means we can say along the famous lines that behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. So friends, we can't even understand other human beings entirely and why they do what they do. Why should we think that we could understand the purposes of an infinitely majestic and wise God entirely? Why should we understand that? In fact, the God who always acts in the way we want him to, who always acts in a way that we can explain, that kind of God is not God at all. That is an idol of our own making. But in the cross, God has given us a message that we can trust him. Even when things don't make sense, we do not have to fear suffering. But this isn't all. We are freed from the fear of suffering, fourthly, because it makes us more like Jesus. Because it makes us more like Jesus. Find chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, 
What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This instruction comes on the heels of Peter reminding these Christians to live like they are exiles on the earth. To live like this isn't their home, like the end is near. So they are to follow the Lord in holiness and love, leaving behind their former lives of sin. They are to follow God's will and live for his glory. And we can see that in these verses, Peter repeats a lot of the themes he's brought up already. That suffering purifies us in verse 17. That we are to continue in faithfulness and entrusting our good and wise God, verse 19. But I want to draw your attention to verse 12. It's here that Peter tells his readers not to be surprised by trials and suffering, by thinking that it's strange that these kinds of things happen. You know, contrary to many popular churches and preachers, the Bible is absolutely 100% clear that the Christian life is not a trouble-free life. Now, what, as we've seen, now what Peter has been reminding us at the same time, that doesn't mean that the Christian life is a joyless life either. But let's be careful to apply this to ourselves. COVID-19 is shocking. It's unique to what many of us have witnessed in our lifetimes. But that something like this can happen and even affect Christians should not be surprising to us. It shouldn't be surprising. Why? Well, in part for all the reasons Peter has already stated. Because suffering is a part of a fallen world. Because God purposefully uses suffering in the lives of those who he saved. And because Jesus himself, the one we follow and the one we serve, suffered. Those are the reasons it shouldn't be surprising. Pastor and author Tim Keller says this. Some people have the naive view that because they are fairly savvy people or self-disciplined or morally decent or good Christians, that really, really bad things simply can't happen to them. Jesus himself dissolves that bad things can't happen to good people. If God allowed a perfect man to suffer terribly, but for an ultimate good, why should we think that something like that could never happen to us? But again, Peter says not only do we not have to fear suffering, he also says that we can rejoice in the midst of suffering. Verse 13 he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, what does this mean? Well, does it mean that we somehow contribute to Jesus' saving work when we suffer? No, it, it can't mean that. Christ achieved our salvation, our redemption completely. He himself said on the cross, it is finished. So what does it mean then to share Christ's sufferings? I think one author explains it really well. Another book of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, says that Christ learned humanhood from suffering. And what we see here in 1 Peter is that we learn Christhood from our suffering. Jesus suffered for us, not so that we would never suffer, so that when we do suffer, we would become more like him. So Christian, when the weaker you are, the more like Jesus you are. 
The weaker you are, the closer to Jesus you get. And remember that Jesus has taken away the suffering that truly destroys us. Jesus has already endured and satisfied the suffering of being cast away from God. So that now, all of the suffering we have only serves to make us more like Christ. So like coal under pressure eventually becomes a diamond. So Christians under pressure eventually become like Jesus, glorious, beautiful, without sin. Fifth reason, 1 Peter tells us not to fear suffering because suffering gives way to glory. Suffering gives way to glory. Find chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, near the close of the letter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are, are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's Peter saying here as he closes his letter? Well, he's saying that while we are still here living as exiles on the earth and enduring suffering, that we look up. We look up. We submit to, we surrender to our God, trusting his wisdom, trusting his timing, trusting his care. You see how Peter describes God's character throughout this last section? That God cares for us. He says that God is the God of all grace. If we are in Christ, trusting in him alone, then God is for us. One of the sweetest verses to me is Romans 8.32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So while we're here, while we're living as exiles, enduring suffering, we look up and we look out. We look out. Because within each suffering and trial is a temptation. It's a temptation maybe to grumble and complain, to bitterness and resentment, to worry and fear. It's a temptation to sin and compromise. So while we're here living as exiles, enduring suffering, we look out. Look out not only for temptation, but also look out at other followers of Jesus throughout the world and around us. Did you see that in verse 9? How suffering is experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So maybe God is using us being prevented from gathering together for a little while to give us just a little taste of what our fellow Christians face throughout the world all the time. Not being able to gather to worship Christ freely, but rather gathering under threat of violence. So maybe God is using this time in us so that we can better help others in their time of need, reminding us of our need for people, 
the preciousness of being around one another. So while we're here, we look up, we look out, and we look ahead. We remember what God has promised for us, that we may be sailing in a storm. But as Peter has written throughout this letter, we have an anchor in that storm, promises to hold on to, a presence of Christ to enjoy. But what he reminds us at the end of his letter, that as we are sailing in the storm, we have a destination that we will reach. I remember one of the first real times I was on the water. I took a canoe trip with my dad. Uh, It was about a 10-mile trip down a river. Uh, Very peaceful time. Looking back at it now, uh, I would have loved to go on it again. But at the time, I was was freaked out at being on the water, afraid that we were to tip in. And it never really went away throughout the whole trip. The whole time, I was just, let's just get to the end. Let's just get to the end. And then finally, we had gotten to the end, safe and sound. But then all of a sudden, a huge log appeared right in front of us. We had to turn real sharply, and boom, we tipped over. We did not reach our destination safely. And what Peter says here is that those who God saves, that won't happen. He will hold on to us. Bring us home with him forever. So there it is. First Peter at a glance. Just a few reasons why those who are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus have reason to endure, have reason to hope and even rejoice in the middle of trials and suffering. And you might be thinking just as we close and say, Steve, this is, This is all nice to think. This is all nice to know. It is quite another thing to do. And boy, are you right. You know, it's, I remember beginning in eighth grade all the way through senior year of high school. Every year I took Spanish. I took Spanish every year. And you know what? I got an A every semester. This is not to toot my own horn because guess what's coming? Right now, I don't know a lick of Spanish. Maybe 10 words. So, friends, we should, we should know our Bibles. We should, we should study these reasons not to fear and suffering. We should know this in our head. But then we should drive these down into our hearts. And I suggest living in the Scriptures, praying the Bible, praying the Psalms, singing the rich heritage of hymns that we have from Christian history so that we know this in our heads, drive it down in our hearts, so we can actually use this in our lives when we endure suffering. Actually use it as we hold on to our Savior and our Savior holds on to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you paid it all. All to you we owe. And we say in the midst of trials and sufferings, God, just the this, this simple plea, We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Please bear with us, Lord. We thank you that a bruised reed you will not break. So hold on to us as we hold on to you. We trust you, Father, through this. Help us to trust you more. Please be with the people who are listening this week. Be close to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.